This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So welcome everybody. So the idea over here is how do you grow an emunah? So the first time, the first, last class we talked about and how to go and how to build your emunah by knowing that there is a God. Step number two, we're going to deal with seven criteria. But in order to understand the seven criteria, I have to give you an introduction. In fact, this introduction is so important that if you want to work at emunah, this is the one sefer that I will tell you to focus on. The sefer is the Chavot HaLvavot. The Chavot HaLvavot was written by Rabbeinu Bachia, who uh, it was written roughly about a thousand years ago. And this, this sefer was originally written in Arabic. And the reason why it was written in Arabic is because the majority of the population was speaking Arabic that, at that time. Uh, he, Rabbeinu Bachia lived in Spain, and he was a Dayan, he was a judge over there. And after he died, at, well... I'm assuming it was after he died. It's a little bit of gray of like, you know, like the, the, the details of when all these details came into, into play. But a little bit after he died, there was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yehuda ben Ibn Tibon, who went and translated from Arabic into Hebrew. And the, you know, whatever, it was translated a few times, but regardless of the, of the, of the, uh, you know, of the, way that the path that this that this sefer took it was originally written by the by uh by Rabbeinu Bachia who to tell you how much like what type of level Rabbeinu Bachia was when you go and you open up a sefer generally when the majority of let's say somebody who's a tamil somebody who actually knows a little bit about the Torah the first thing they do before they read a sefer is they read the haskamot they read the approbations you know like who said that this guy, this author is good who said that you could go and learn from this person and this person is on a high level so if you open up if you buy a sefer in Eichler's or in uh, please someone help me Mikar, Mikar Judaica, you go and you open it up over here and you see over here and you'll be like, aha, you see over here a Haskaman approbation from who? Rab Moshe Feinstein or Chamavadi Yosef. You'll be like, okay, this guy is pretty good. You know, you know, that he was able to get, you know, Haskaman from, from such big rabbis. But imagine you see somebody, let's say from the Chafetz Chaim or from the, you know, the, you know, you could go back to, you know, the Chazonish or you could even say the, um, the Benishchai. But imagine you have an Haskaman from an angel. Like an angel comes, and I'm not saying like your soulmate angel. That's a different thing. You know, like, hey, by the way, you know, read this book. It's really good. I'm not talking about that angel. I'm talking about like a real, like a, like a, no, no physical angel, like a spiritual angel, like a real spiritual angel that comes in. And how did this come to play? So we know Rabbi Yosef Cairo. Rabbi Yosef Cairo was authored the Shulchan Aruch. He used to learn with an angel. Yeah, the uh, sefer is called Magid Misharim. And in this sefer, this angel told Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, he said that you should learn from the Chavot al-Vavot. Why? And I want to quote this from you. He says like this. This is the, the angel. It's quoted in the Magid Misharim, the end of Parashat Behar. He says, read a passage from the Chavot al-Vavot every single day because he knew how to subjugate the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, like no one else. So here you have... And Haskama, an approbation from, from an angel of God saying, hey, this is a good read. You know, like, he's going to do a good job. Read it. Like, I don't think you can get higher than that, you know, in, in the worldly, uh, you know, Haskama. The Ariza, you told the students to study Chavot HaVot also every single day. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter would say that the Chavot HaVot, the Shara Bitachon, which we're going to be speaking about today, that is the Shulchan Aruch for the Hilchot Bitachon. So if you really want to learn Bitachon, in fact, I, I've done... Baruch Hashem, you know, with, with God's help, I was able to, to learn tremendous amount, the tremendous amount of Sfarim on Bitachon. I cannot tell you how many sources all go back to this source, to quote the Chavot al Everybody goes back to the Chavot al So, 
What we're going to be speaking about tonight is the Chavot Halavot, where he brings down seven prerequisites, or seven criteria, or seven steps that require, that you need to build Bitachon. Now, some of the things are going to be easy for you, some things are going to be difficult for you. It doesn't mean that you should just drop it if it's going to be difficult. You focus whatever it is that you can. If you can do all the more, the better. So, imagine the mashal goes like this. That there was once a person that was walking on the seashore, and he noticed things that were shining from the, you know, from the sand. And he comes and he looks closer, and he sees that they're diamonds. They're like jewels and diamonds, expensive jewels and diamonds. Is this person going to be like, well, I don't have any knapsack, I don't have any bag, I don't have anything to carry with it, am I going to just go to leave it and just go and forget about it? Or is he going to grab whatever he can? He's going to make his shirt into a bag, he's going to make whatever it is that he could do, he will grab, he'll fill up his pockets to the, you know, to the max, he'll carry it, he'll put it even in his mouth, it doesn't matter, forget about, you know, people that are, you know, uh, what are those people that, uh, germaphobes, right? They, they forget, they're gonna, just gonna insert it in every way possible that just that he could carry another diamond, another jewel. The same thing is with Amunabi Dachan. Whatever it is that you could take away from this class, take it and run with it. Whatever it is that you can't, work on it. But doesn't mean that if you can't take the whole package, doesn't mean just leave it. Take whatever you can, just like this person sitting on the, you know, on the, on the seabed, he's gonna go and he's gonna try to take whatever it is that he can. So let's go through these seven steps. Some of these steps we're going to go into more details, and other ones we're going to go into uh, less detail. Step number one is that God has compassion, pity, and love. Now, when a person goes, and when a person, uh, the, the, the focus over here is, I'm going to tell you a bunch of like, some of them are going to be character traits, some of these are going to be a, bit, uh, you know, a little bit of different the more that you focus on it, the more that you... Do- it's not enough that I just tell you this and be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You have to internalize it. You have to, you have to really bring it in. So when... S- the Step number one is God has compassion, pity, and love. Now, what does this mean? So imagine somebody... We're going to say you, but it's not you because, uh, you know, I know, whatever. It's somebody that you know, right? Um, he gets or she gets captured by the enemy. And that person's going to get tortured. Not you, because uh, God forbid. But somebody else that looks exactly like you, has the same name as you, whatever, birthday, you know what I'm talking about. So they're going to get tortured. But the torturer says, you have an option of two, ch- uh, uh, slow down. You have an option of choosing your own torturer. Behind door number one, there's a curtain goes up, everyone claps, you know, and out walks out a guy with, you know, roughly about, you know, six foot 14, you know, 400 pounds, muscles in places that you didn't know existed, tattoos in places that shouldn't exist. You know, and he has, he's got those, those teardrop tattoos. Whoever knows what I'm talking about. Um, you know, welcome to the ghetto. Yeah, you know, he's got, he's got like a few teardrops. His name is Ivan. You know, he's chewing glass, you know, and he's swallowing it. He's not even spitting it out. And they're like, behind contestant number one is Ivan the Terrible. And in walks Ivan. He's like chewing glass. He's looking at you. And he does this. He goes, you know, and then he coughs out some blood. And then he snorts it back through his nose. Whatever. It's like stuff that's going on. Like he's, he's, he's a real deal. He's like, you know, Vladimir Putin's, you know, secret man. So that's behind door. Then door number two opens up. And out walks a four foot eleven, you know, English British woman drinking her English tea. You know the English tea, you know, with the milk inside it. I whatever, don't get me started. Right? There's tea inside. There's just like there's stuff going on over there. And while she's walking there, she's like, "Hello," and she's walking in there, and she's like, you know, she's introducing herself. My name is Ethel. You know, this is my first time torturing. Um, and she's sewing you a scarf because it seems a little bit chilly at this time. And then you know the talk show host is going to be like, so who do you choose to be your torturer? 
Is anybody in the right mind going to choose Ivan? No. Happens to be there's one person that will choose it. And it's one of my students where I asked him this. And he's like, yeah, I'll choose Ivan. I'm like, why? He's like, because woman, we can't connect. Ivan, I could speak to him. Maybe I could figure something out. So 99.9% of the people will choose Ethel over Ivan. Why? Because, you know, like Ethel's walking out there. She's literally, you know knitting you a scarf, you know, she's drinking her English tea with her pinky out, must I add, you know, it's very important, you know, her pinky, she's like, she's, she, and she's like, you know, like, is everything okay, how you doing, you know, like, here's a biscuit, what can I do for you, she has compassion, she has mercy, but like, okay, if she's gonna torture me, so what is it gonna be, I'm probably gonna have to listen to some classical music and listen to her about our grandsons, you know, whatever it is that I'm gonna have to do, but if I even tortures me, then forget about it, who knows what's gonna happen, so you choose based on what, who's gonna be more compassionate, who's gonna have more mercy, Now imagine door number four opens up and out walks your father. Did I say door number four? Door number three. I skipped. Door number three. Door number four. Door number three is a mystery. All right. Um, door number four, you know, that walks out and in walks your father. Now, who are you going to choose? You know, Ethel, Ivan is out of the picture. Is it going to be Ethel or is it going to be your father? Now, let's say your whatever, your relationship with your father isn't the best. Door number three, surprise, right? Out walks your mother. You know, like, so who are you going to choose? Like, even Ethel, which is so sweet and so nice, but you don't know. Maybe she's, you know, she's got some stuff going on. Maybe, you know, she's nice outside, but as soon as, the, you know, the makeup comes off, all of a sudden, you know, like there's a tarantula that comes out. So who knows? What, so you're going to what? You're going to choose whoever's going to be more merciful for you. God is more merciful than Ivan, obviously. More merciful than Ethel, very known. Your father, your mother, everybody combined, God has more Rachmanut than all of them put together. This is what it means when, when God is compassionate, God has mercy. Now, not only that, God also has love. What does love mean? That it, think about who is the person that loves you most. On the, you know, let's, let's rephrase that. Who do you love the most in the world? Now, imagine you figure, so any parent usually would say a child. But whatever it is, whatever your situation, imagine who you love in the most. And what would you do for that child or for that person that you love the most? You would never let them somebody hurt them. You'd rather take the pain upon yourself. Now, that to that extent, that how much you love this person, God loves you more than you love that person. So when when the Chavot HaVot says that God has compassion, pity, and love, that means not to a level that we can even begin to understand. God has a level, so when you're going and you're internalizing step number one, step number one is that God loves you, that God cares about you, that God has compassion for you, that God has mercy for you, you have to internalize this. You have to think about it, to what level does God actually love me and care about me and has mercy for me? That's step number one. Step number one, think and internalize about how much God has compassion, pity, and love for you. Step number two, says the Chavot HaVavot, besides God loving you, God is not forgetful or lazy. It's very interesting. Like when, when I was learning the Chavot HaVavot, I was like thinking, I'm like, you know what? It's so interesting the things that the Chavot HaVavot point out. Because like what would you even bring? Like lazy? Like it wouldn't even be, but, it, but it's so true. Because the Ramban, Nachmanides, brings down in Parashat Bo, That says something very interesting. That if somebody, one, one of the fundamental principles of Judaism is that God is aware of every last detail of our life. Now if someone would say like, okay, this is so insignificant, it doesn't even count, God doesn't even care, it's nothing. That is a denial of the Torah, says Ramban. So, so the God is so, what's the right word? S- mm, not meticulous, not like oversees every little detail. No, like, I'm, I'm talking about like, just like, so 
particular on every single detail in your life that nothing is considered insignificant. And if you say something is insignificant, that is a very, very big problem. There's nothing that is considered insignificant to God. Not only that, that there is a commandment that God, every blade of grass, to tell you how how particular, maybe that's what I'm looking at, how particular God is on the creation, every single blade of grass has a separate command to grow. That's how particular, we can't even understand it. Why? Because we think of things like human beings. How do human beings, we only have a certain limited scope that our brain can function. We cannot think, you know, breathe in. Breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. We, we don't think of that, it's subconscious. Why is it subconscious? Because if you would have to breathe, if you would have to actually consciously think that, we would stop breathing. Because we would be watching something, right? We couldn't even focus on that. So we have so many things that are working for us subconscious because we don't have the, the mental capacity to think of so many things at the same point in time. God has such, beyond our comprehension, that every single blade of, gla- of grass has a separate commandment to grow that is, that is given by God. And not only that, but God also knows your thoughts, knows your emotions, knows your intellect, knows every single aspect. And not only in this world, also in the next world. In this world and the next world and anything in between, the kafakala, whatever it is that you're dealing with, God has complete jurisdiction over and complete supervision over. Now, there are many people, let's say they go into uh, business and they think the business is not successful, maybe they have to go to a different business, and the... The, the real reason is it has nothing to do with the business. At the end of the day, if you're supposed to make money, then you will make money. If you're not supposed to make money, it's irrelevant what the business is. And I forgot what it was. I, I came across an article. I forgot the name of the person. Um, of, of the, uh, I came across an article over the richest people in every state. And one of the states, it may, it may have been Iowa or something, was a... Um, what was his name? I don't know. I probably should have done better research on this. Quicken Loans. Quicken Loans is a mortgage company. And he's one of the richest people in, well, he is the richest person in the state. And what's very interesting is that you look at it, it's a mortgage company. There was a, anybody who, I doubt it. Is anybody here in real estate? Person, come on, you're not in real estate? You're, you know at least 17 people that are in real estate for sure, right? Yeah. What? Oh, you do titles. Okay. Okay. Is it on Flappish Avenue? No. Okay. It's oh, it's in the city. Okay, fine. So um, when you go in the in the real estate business uh, before the the bubble burst, or if, if you know, I don't know, if you guys are a little so blank faces. Okay, before a certain time, you know, once upon a time, right? Um, there was a time when people got mortgages. Right? Everybody got mortgages, and everybody was making a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, people stopped getting mortgages because people were defaulting on the mortgages, and thing was going just like down. And it was whatever it was. It was the, the you know the real estate bubble sort of uh, burst, and you had a lot of mortgage companies that popped up because at one point everybody who worked in mortgages were making a ton of money because like anybody they called hey you want to buy a house yeah, yeah let's buy a house you don't have to put as much money down you're able to buy a house and people were getting over the head eventually people defaulted on the mortgage and the the bubble burst but you had everybody was popping up businesses everywhere on mortgage companies and people were making a killing people were making so it was crazy how much money people were making and then you had all you know the bubble burst and then people stopped making the money and you know, businesses started closing down. And people were thinking, what do, how do people think? 
had I got into the mortgage business at the right time, then I would have made money. But now that I got into it late, or maybe now that I got into whatever it is that people calculate, they say, okay, I didn't make, it has nothing to do with that. If you're supposed to make money, you'll make money. This person, you know, created his business, you know, X amount of years ago, and he was supposed to make money, and he made money. Now, I, I like to explain like this, my own interpretation. It's not the business that makes the money, it's the person that makes the money. But it's not really the person that makes the money, it's God who tells you this person is going to make money. And the way that I explain it is, uh, let's say you take, um, you know, a, a wealthy person. Let's say you take Mark Zuckerberg, whatever it is. Any, any wealthy person, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, whatever it is that you, whoever it is that you know in your circle. You take that person. Let's say he wouldn't have opened up Facebook, Microsoft, or, you know, Google or whatnot. You know, let's say he wouldn't have opened Amazon. Would he think he still been made that money? Now, depends how you think. If you think with Emunam meaning that this person was supposed to make this money either way. If it wasn't Amazon, it would have been something else. If it wasn't Microsoft, it would have been something, because this person was supposed to make that money. Obviously, the, the shliach that God said it was through Microsoft, through Amazon, but at the end of the day, when a person's supposed to make money, a person is supposed to make money. It's not the business that makes money, and it's really the person, but it's not really the person, it's really God who said that the person should make money, and the business is sort of like the messenger in between. The concept over here is, is that, when some thing is supposed to happen, it will happen. God will take care of it. God is not lazy. God doesn't, you know, he's, he's, God is supervising every single aspect of the creation to the T of where it's supposed to be. That's step number two. Step number three. Step number three is that God is strong and cannot be defeated. Nothing can be prevented if God wants something to happen. Now, if you go and you trust somebody that's weak, you'd be like, this God or this person can have compassion can even not be lazy, but he doesn't have the ability to help me. So God not only has a compassion, pity, and mercy, God not only is not lazy, but God is also so powerful, so strong, that nothing can stand in his way. Now why is this so important? So let's try to think of, uh, let's go back to our dear friends, Ethel and Ivan. So, if let's say you were, you had to go through enemy, no, let's make it even better. Let's say you had to go through a jungle. With lions and tigers and beers, oh my. Like all the whole shebang. Like everybody. Everybody is going to be in this jungle. And you have to go with a partner. And you have to choose who your partner is going to be. So you could choose Ethel. Right? You'll be very warm and you'll drink delicious tea. Or you could choose Ivan, you know, who chews glass for breakfast. Like who do you want to choose? So there's something very interesting. Obviously everyone's going to choose Ivan. You know, because like, you know, whatever. You know, like I'll just stand on his shoulders and nobody could get me. But when you think about it, so for one aspect you choose Ethel. For another aspect, you choose Ivan. So like, we're, what is it going to be? I'm just like thinking right now, imagine somebody just like cuts my class just at this area. Like Ethel and Ivan. Like who is Ethel and Ivan and who, why do we have to choose them? So, but, ima- but imagine this concept over here. Look, at, look how beautiful this works. So <clears throat> when it comes to compassion and mercy, you rather choose Ethel. When it comes to power and strength, you rather choose Ivan. There's so many different things that it's sort of, when you look at life itself, it's sort of contradicting. So you can have someone who's so powerful at the same time so merciful? And the answer is yes, that is what God is. God is both Ethel and Ivan at the same time. It's like, it, and more, like a lot more, like infinite more. I can't even, you know, begin to, to, you know, to explain that. But there's so many different aspects of it. So why, why am I bringing it in this manner? Because when you think of every aspect of these seven criteria, there's so many different things that you have to focus on and everything that you build upon yourself with it, it will help you in that criteria. But when you go to a different step, a different criteria, now you have to focus a little bit differently. And those never contradict each other, because this is God that we're talking about. God is not only strong and powerful, God is also compassion, God is also merciful. And the idea over here is, 
is why is this so important that even when things look so bad in your life, even when things look so down and it looks like it's, it's all over, there's no hope, God can get, take you out of that. God can take you out of anything in your life. And that is the aspect of strength. That is the aspect of strength. No matter if it's good, if it's bad, if it's ugly, it doesn't matter. God can help you. That is step number three. Let's go to step number four. Step number four is that anything that is beneficial to man is known by God. Now, whether it's helpful to you or detrimental to you, God knows what you're dealing with and how to, you know, and how to help you and how to fix it. Now, if let's say you ha- you buy a product, a complex product, and you want to fix it, are you going to go to the seller, to the retailer, or are you going to go to the manufacturer? You're going to go to the manufacturer, the one who produced this. So, I guess the easiest way I can explain this is a car. If you have a car and you want to fix it, you want to fix it to the highest level, you bring it back to the dealership that ha- that deals with that car. Because they know the car, they breathe the car, that's all they know. So, when you have a problem, are you going to go to somebody like a middleman, or are you going to go to the manufacturer of that product? The manufacturer of a human being is God. Now, when God manufacture us, he knows exactly what is beneficial for us and what is harmful for us, even the things that we sometimes think that, oh, this is going to be beneficial for me and this is going to be harmful for me. But really what God says, no, you got it all mixed up. This is going to be beneficial for you and this is going to be harmful for you. So many times in life, we go through certain criteria, certain scenarios where we think that God is hurting us, God is, you know, affecting us. And really what God's saying, this is for your own benefit. You don't see that because you're not the creator. It's imagine a car that is able to talk. I'm not talking about artificial intelligence. A car that is able to talk and all of a sudden you give it a certain type of oil or gas and be like, no, I want the sweeter thing. I'm like, the sweeter thing is not going to help you. It's going to be more detrimental for you. That is what God does to us. God understands us more than we understand ourselves. So the aspect that everything God does for us is for the best. The fact that maybe you're not married yet. The fact that maybe you don't have any children yet, the fact that maybe you're not a billionaire yet, whatever it is that you want in your life, the fact that it didn't happen, it's for your benefit. Even when you think, well, wait a minute, I want this and and I need this. And God says, well, I created you. I know you. I know what you want better than what you know that you think that you want. I know what you need more than what you need. So what God, what we're going on over here is that anything that happens in your life is for your benefit, even when you think that it's not. That's step number four. Step number five. Step number five is that God has been the exclusive caretaker of you from when you, the second that you were born, let's scratch that, from the second from before you were born, however far you want to go, until now and then and the future to come. Now, why is this so important and so imperative? It's very, very important for anybody who wants to build a munah to look back in their life and think about all the benefit that God has done for them. How many times have we've wanted something and we didn't get it and then we're like sort of like, you know, we're complaining like, God, why? Like, like I'm literally the Baba Sali in reincarnation. Like I'm literally the Chavetz Chaim. Like I'm so holy. Like why are you doing this to me? And only later do we realize, be like, oh yeah, that's you know, for my benefit. And I was speaking, you know, today to somebody regarding a person that didn't get married until they were later on, you know, they were, they were in their, uh, late, uh, late twenties, very late twenties, 29 and a half, you know, like late, late twenties. And I was, you know, we were talking, it was very interesting because this person in the beginning of their twenties were, they had a certain character trait. I don't want to get into the details. They had a certain character trait. But as they were single and they stayed single for a while, they changed this character trait. They were like, you know, like, I don't want... And they they took themselves out of the comfort zone and now they're no longer 
You know what? I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you an example because I think I feel like it's going to be more beneficial. So there was one person that was a very, um, very secluded person. Not a loner, but like like a loner. Like you know, you understand? Like the you know, like a, somebody that likes to be by themselves introvert. doesn't want introvert. Yeah, thank you. Perfect. Thank you very much. So it was an introvert. Now that's how this person was in the beginning of their twenties. Now as they got on in the years, they were like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't be an introvert. So they put themselves in uncomfortable situations to put themselves in a more extrovert, uh, um, you know, situation where they put themselves in a in a situation where they were uncomfortable. But they did it so often that it became comfortable. You know what I'm talking about? You know like how you hate broccoli or spinach, but then you eat it so much and now you love spinach? You know, Sephardim say this about gefilte fish. You know what I'm talking about? So like when you like don't like something, but you eat it so much, you're like, okay, now I need it. Uh, drug, addicts, drug addicts say this about drugs. Well, you know, whatever it is, the concept that, that the more that you deal with it, you, you enjoy it. So this introvert actually became an extrovert uh, because he didn't get married, you know, in his early 20s. But what was... Amazing thing is, is that his spouse was a huge extrovert, like needed to be out, needed to be out there. Now I was speaking to somebody, I was like, look how amazing it is, because had he married his spouse when he was younger, there would have been so much conflict. Like he couldn't, he couldn't be an extrovert. He couldn't go out to parties. He couldn't go out, kosher parties, right? Kosher parties. Right? He couldn't go out to like these different events because he just wanted to be in his own circle. But all of a sudden now that Time went by, and he had to go out of his circle. He went out of his comfort zone, and then that became his comfort zone. Now he met his wife. And now that he met his wife, now his wife takes him out to all these, you know, extrovert curricular activities. You know, all of a sudden, he's, there's no arguments. There's no things going on. There's no, there's no fights that were going out of here. So you look over here. There are many people that say, God, why are you doing this to me? Like, you know, like, I'm ready to get married. I'm dating. Come on. You know, make my spouse knock on my door and say, I'm here. I'm waiting for you. What's going on? Let's get married. Let's do this. And we don't see that. And we argue. Be like, God, why not? And, you know, instead of focusing our problems on God, we should start saying, like, wait a minute. Maybe there's something that I need to change. And I'm not saying that you need to become... Don't be like, well, I have to start going to parties. That's what the rabbi is telling us, you know? Let's party already. You know, like, no, that's not the focus. The focus is that there's, there's everything that happens in your life, there is a reason for it. There is a reason that's orchestrated by God. And why God is orchestrating this, all of a sudden, after these things happen, you look back and be like, you know what? If I would have married my spouse back then, we would have never gotten along. It would have ended in disaster. But now that I see what I had to go through, all the troubles and the difficulties I had to go through, actually is to my benefit. Now this is the important aspect of this, that God is with you from the beginning till the end. Now when you focus on all the good that God has done for you in the beginning, all of a sudden you could build, be like, wait a minute, like God was with me so much and He's been helping me non-stop since the beginning. Of course I could trust Him that He's going to help me continuing on. So the aspect of number five is that God is... the the exclusive caretaker of you from the beginning to the end. Now, in this number five, we have to take a little bit of a detour. That, you know, the there's a Pasuk Tehilim, chapter 121, verse 4. God does not sleep. God sees everything. 
And I deal a lot with secular people or people that are not fully religious. And some of them, it, it really amazes me on how much emunah and bitachon they have. Like some of them have more emunah and bitachon than religious people. You have religious people that from the top to the bottom, inside and out, they're really religious. Uh, but then they have, you know, questions and whatever it is. I'm not judging anybody. Rightfully so, for whatever questions they have. Then you have somebody who is religious level at 0.1. Like that's a religious level. But they're like, you know, I know God has a better plan for me. I know they, they have this like, like crazy emunah and bitachon. And what always bothers me is this aspect. Like, what does emunah mean? Emunah means that God oversees every aspect of your life. Meaning that everything that happens, whether it's good or whether it's bad, God oversees it. So if God is overseeing the good and the bad of your life that's happening, God, this is part two, which people sometimes forget, is that God also sees everything that you do, good or bad. So just like somebody who goes, I have emunah bitachon, that God, you know, everything that God asks me is for the best, just like God sees everything, God sees everything. That's part two of that. God sees, meaning that everything that you do in your life, God sees. Now, how important this is, is that the Pasuk Delim, chapter 94, verse 11 says, God knows your thoughts. How scary that is. Imagine somebody comes out with an invention that you could read your thoughts. You know, forget about it. People are not going to leave their houses. You know, like, it's just like an app. Imagine that. They have an app. They just point the camera on you and then just and just reads your thought. First of all, I would say about ninety percent of people will either be hospitalized or institutionalized or locked up. It's either one of those. They're either like everyone's crazy in their own mind, right? So they're all like, yeah, everybody's going to be like, there's a situation going on in everybody's mind. But imagine, like, you think like I can control my thoughts. But imagine someone can read your thoughts. Oh, you're going to learn how to control your thoughts. Oh, trust me. All of a sudden, you're going to be able to control your thought process and how do you change it. Like, we have to internalize that when God sees everything, God sees your actions, your emotions, your thoughts, everything. Not only that God sees your actions, your thoughts, God also oversees, like, the insects. The insects. Can we say thoughts? Do the insects have thoughts? I don't know. I didn't study this enough. But whatever it is, and the animal, to the, to the extent that God feeds the animals. God feed the cockroach. I shouldn't say cockroach. The butterfly. Is that better? Okay. The <laughs> butterfly, you know, has, um, God gives food for the, every single butterfly God provides. Just like God provides for the butterfly, God provides for you as well. And everybody in between. Whether they rhyme with schmackaroach or whether they don't rhyme with schmackaroach, God, you know, provides everybody. Whether they have a long tail, whether they don't have a long tail. Are you guys were saying? Okay, fine. So, so, whether they live in your wall, okay, fine. So the, um, the idea is like this. The, <laughs> yeah. The way that it works, the way that it works is when you look at a little baby, a little child, right? How do you play hide and seek with the baby? So, like, when, you know, adults usually cover their own eyes, like, where's daddy? Ah, right here! You know, like, and the child's like, ah, ah, ah. you know, so almost giving a heart attack? Okay, it's fine. Almost giving a heart attack? It's fine. Right? Great parenting, right? One-on-one. So, the, but the counselor is like, what, what is going on up here? Like, the child is like, so because they don't see you, you're not there? And the answer is yes, that's how the child thinks. If they don't see you, you're not there. The same concept is, if you don't see them, then they can't see you. You ever had, you know, playing with a little child, hide and seek? 
So all they do is they, they could cover their eyes, but their head is like showing, their arms are showing. They think they have the best hiding place possible that you cannot, because they can't see you, so you for sure can't see them. That's how children go and play hide and seek. But the truth is, you know, human beings, we act like that a similar way. When we think that nobody can see us, when we think that we, nobody, sorry, when we think that we can't see anybody else, we think that nobody can see us. And that's how we live our life. So when we live our life, you know, in a certain, uh, um, you know, I don't know, seclusion in our own home or in our own office, whatever it is, we think that nobody's looking at us. So because nobody's looking at us, so, so because I can't see anybody else, nobody else can see me. There are many stories. Uh, one of the most popular ones are with the Vilna Goyen, the Chafetz Chaim, is when they were with their wagon driver. And they're going in the wagon driver, and this is a story from the Chafetz Chaim, that the wagon driver stopped off, and he was, he was traveling, he was, he was, his passenger was a Chafetz Chaim, and he says, listen, you know, he saw like a fruit tree over there, and he's like, let me take some fruit. Um, and the Chafetz Chaim, he told the Chafetz Chaim, be on the lookout, if you see anybody, let me know. So that we could go straight ahead. So the wagon driver pulled over. He stood up on you know one of his horses, one of his carriage, and he grabbed some of the apples. And all of a sudden, Chavetz Chaim says, "He's watching! He's watching! He's watching!" And uh, the guy's like, "What? He's watching!" And he starts running, you know, riding away. And he's looking around, and like no one's there. And the wagon driver says, "Who was watching? I don't see anybody." And the Chavetz Chaim says, "He's watching." You know, he points out to heaven. You know, it's like God is always watching us. And that is how we should feel. And we don't always feel like that. We feel like if somebody's watching us, then okay. You know, like, I have to be good. But if nobody's watching us, I could be myself. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai told the students that the fear of heaven should be like on you, like the fear of men. Meaning that just like you fear somebody watching you, that's how you should fear heaven. And the students were like, really, that's it? But imagine that. Imagine how different your life would be if you had a video camera crew going around with you every single second of every single day. Like, how different? And there's like, you know, like, I don't know, a few thousand people watching you. They're tuning in and be like, tonight on Sarah. You know, let's see what she's doing. And they're watching over, and she's doing her makeup, and then she's going out, and she's speaking to her friends. And what, how are you going to speak? What are you going to do? So many things are going to change. No, like, not so many things. I'll probably say everything that you do will change. Like, everything we'll do, we will change. But we don't think that way. We don't think that we have a camera crew going over us. Said Rabbi Victor Miller, we should. We, one of the things that we need to focus on, one of the things that we need to work on, is that God is always watching us. When we think about that, our lives really change. If you ever try to work on this, even for 10 minutes, it's going to change your life. It's going to change. And if you get this out of the out of tonight's class, then then it was worth it for me to come here, uh, and for you to come here also, and for the video, okay, whatever. So it was worth it to come here, because think about it, tonight, try to focus that God is watching you. And you're like, God is watching everybody. Like, yeah, yeah, we get that, you know, we, we all say that, but focus on that. Think about that. Internalize that. God is literally watching you. And if that doesn't, like, like shake you up, imagine you have a hundred people, imagine you have a thousand people that you don't know in the Philippines. Yeah. Ah, very good. So the, the, the concept over here is, is that, you know, there are people that sell drugs to children. Let's take it up a step and notch, right? You know, clubs is one thing, but like selling drugs to children is another thing, right? Um, so, like, so okay, fine. So like, because I am not doing maybe what I'm supposed to, but Julio over here, you know, is selling ecstasy to, you know, 
children or whatever it is. He's selling drugs to children. So like God is going to care about me. And that, this is what the Ramban brings, the Ramban brings down that yeah, just be, God focuses on every single aspect of it. And just because A is doing something wrong, that has nothing to do with you. Like, like at the same point in time, you th- when we think, you know, when we look at it, imagine we see 10 screens, right? And each screen is a different person. So in screen number one, is a person spacing out. Screen number two is, uh, you know, I don't know, a person blowing their nose. Screen number three is a person reading Harry Potter. Screen number four is a person watching a movie. Screen number five is a person smoking drugs. Uh, screen number six is a person dealing drugs. Screen number seven is a person creating drugs. Screen number eight is a person killing a person who's creating drugs. Screen number nine, okay, whatever, you go on, you get the point, right? You know, like, and it gets worse as it goes on. So, as human beings, who do we focus on? Be like, okay, forget about these people. Like, that's nothing. Let's focus on, you know, like, this situation going on. These are the big fish. we got to catch. But God doesn't work. That's how human being thinks. But God doesn't work that. God sees 100% of this, 100% of this, 100% of this, 100% of this, 100% of this. Everything God focuses 100% on you. So just because somebody else is doing something bad, just because somebody else is not up to par to what you're doing, and maybe you have even, that doesn't matter. God judges you not compared to your friend. Not compared to your neighbor or your sister or your brother or your spouse. God judges you compared to you of what your potential is. So when we're looking, uh, you know, but but we're doing in our lives, we have to focus on, okay, but wait a minute. This is what, what we're doing. And forget about what everybody else is doing. Is God going to say something against what I'm doing right? Is there a problem what I'm doing? And God is judging me to what I am doing. To the extent of this is, is that... We're judged based on our potential of what we could accomplish, not of what our neighbors could accomplish. So you have somebody else that he could accomplish creating organizations or she could accomplish creating organizations and whatnot. And maybe for us, we can't accomplish creating organizations, but we could accomplish, you know, X, Y, and Z. We're judged for not doing X, Y, and Z. That's what we're focused on. So it's irrelevant what anybody else happens, how bad the world is. We're judged for who we are as we are for what we could be. Make sense? Yeah? Okay. As individuals, exactly. So, says Rabbi Victor Miller, this is something that we have to focus on. And it says Rabbi Victor Miller, a person can't say, well, I don't feel it. You know, like, I don't feel God. You know, like, oh, you know, like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not feeling God. I have this conversation, I can't tell you how many times I have this type of conversations with people where they're like, um, yeah, well, I know God exists, but like, you know, you know, there's always like a long sigh, and I feel like there should be like a pill taking at the end of that sigh. Like that's how long. It's like, oh, yeah. And then they take out an harmonica and be like, so blue, so blue. You know, everything is bad. You know, like and it's like, and they're like, oh, everything is just like terrible. But like when when you're working on yourself, it doesn't matter that you know you tried and you failed. You know, like, okay, at least you tried. But the focus is that get up and try again. If you don't feel God watching you. So make yourself feel God watching you. It's just like if you're tired and lazy and it's time to do your taxes and you're like, oh, I just can't be bothered, right? Assuming you're from England and you come into America and you got a green card. Whatever, everything's working. Right? And you're going, I can't be bothered to do my taxes. And like the, the IRA is not going to be like, well, okay, you know, have a cup of tea and some biscuits, you know, might as well. You know, like, no, they're going to be like, I don't care. You owe us X amount of money. So just like this world works in a way, and it sometimes they're like, push it. there's a deadline. 
We have a deadline also. It's expiration date in every single human being. It's not like milk, which isn't about two weeks from before you bought it. But it's also, you know, like where you are standing. Every single one of us has an expiration date. And we have a certain amount of time when we have to accomplish certain, you know, certain amount of character traits, certain amount of building and different criteria. And if we don't, then very scary. We're held liable for that. We're, we're really held liable for that. So we have to uh, work in it. And the concept is, that God is not only watching us, that even if you go and you work for your money, and then you buy your food, and then you cook your food, and you do like everything. Obviously, I'm speaking to women, because men don't understand like what that means, uh, cooking. Uh, I mean, talking about... And you, you know, you go and you bring all that together. After all that, you say benching. You bench to God. What does that mean? You say, thank you, God. That God is the one that gave me the food, even though I worked for it. I plowed for it, assuming you're a farmer, and I did everything for it, and I did it, and I baked it, and I cooked it, and I did everything for it. At the end of the day, God did that also. God, you didn't do anything. God did that. You were just being like the puppet master. To, to tell you the exact detail, there was uh, there was actually a few stories, you know, brought down in the same concept. There was a fire that broke out in a certain town, and a fire, you know, so nowadays when you have a fire... So you have a fire, so you have a, what is it called, a four alarm fire, three alarm fire, you know, where there's like, there's like more than, you need more than one fire station to come down. In the olden days, if a fire broke down, right, so basically half the town, you know, like burnt down with it, cause like the houses were made, you know, very close to each other, things burnt down. The, there was two big, you know, Hasidic rabbis who said, during that time, one of them said that, that there's not a shoelace, the word that he used was a shoelace, that is burnt superficial, not, not superficial, uh, superfluously. There is everything that's burnt to the exact. And another, the Rob said, another Hasidic Rob said, that every splinter of wood is designated by God. This is gonna burn, and this is not gonna burn. And we see this. If anybody looked at pictures of post-fires, it's usually on like the Yeshiva world or like things like that, be like, look, the entire house broke down. But the shas never broke down. And the mishpacha that it broke down. Must be by the shas and the mishpacha. Whatever it is, right? Today's class is brought to you by the mishpacha. Okay, so um, the <laughs> sponsorship is available. Okay, so the, um, the the idea is over here is, is that we see that there's sometimes that there's entire surroundings that's burned down, but one section is not burned down. And the reason is, is because God said this splinter of wood. You know what a splinter is? Splinter is, a, is like when you... So we're learning on a ping, literally learning on a ping pong table right now. So when you're scra- you know, moving your eyes, you know, your, your hand through it, and there's a little, little tiny little splinter that comes out, and that what pokes you, the splinter is a small thing that gets under your skin. One of the most terrible pain that God ever created, right? The splinter, right? It goes under your skin, and you have to like dig it out, you know, like the, the difficult pains in life, so, you know, third, you know, first world power problems. So, that splinter, if it's going to get burnt or if it's not going to get burnt, is decreed by God. If it's supposed to burn in this fire, it's not. That's the oversight that God has on every single iota of your life. Says Rabbi Victor Miller. No one look at your watches. Please. So, says Rabbi Victor Miller. I know, right? That's why I don't know why I said that. So, says Rabbi Victor Miller. Okay, we'll go fast. We'll finish about... 20 minutes. Okay, so now, uh, Rabbi Victor Miller says that the, there's a pasuk in Bereshit, chapter 15, verse 6. It says, So he's talking about Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu believed in God, and God considered to him to be a righteousness. What does it mean, says Rabbi Victor Miller, that he believed in Hashem and God considered it a righteousness? That a criteria to be righteous is that you have to believe in God. And then says Rabbi Victor Miller, so it's not a criteria, it's the criteria. The criteria to be righteous 
to be a tzaddik or tzaddikah is to have emunah. Is to have emunah. The, what is yirat shemaim? Fear of heaven means, says Rabbi Victor Miller, it means knowing that there is a God. Knowing that everything... In fact, simplify it. Yirat shemaim means that there is emunah. That you have emunah. That's what yirat shemaim means. And says Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And he goes and says like this, in the future, it says that the knowledge of God will increase throughout the entire world. And there's not going to be hunger. There's not, what, is the, what is the concept over here? That a lot of people, when they reason that they don't do something is the fear of getting caught. Because they fear that maybe this, when somebody goes and comes to a level of understanding that God oversees everything, then the fear of getting caught is not only going to be, you know, whether somebody human is going to catch me or not, but whether if, if someone, you know, if God is going to see me or not. And when someone comes to a realization that God oversees everything, then all of a sudden, then when you're going to go and you're going to deal on this level, then there's going to be no war, like in the days of Mashiach. There's not going to be any war. There's not, going to, there's not going to be any famine. There's not going to be any problems. Why? Because there's going to be a level of knowledge of God that's spread through the entire world. And in fact, the concept over here is that with Adam Una, people have very, very destructive, twisted, tortured ideologies. Very, very like, you know, the, um, uh, the easiest example that I could give you is Robin Hood. Robin Hood is a childhood, you know, tale where you, you have a person over here that robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Now, halakhically, this person is a ganav. He's who knows what this person like. Who cares like what he's doing good with his money? Like I have many people that come and tell me, be like, "Well, Rabbi, I'll go to Vegas and I'll go to Atlantic City, but I'll give like fifty percent to charity." And I'm like, "God doesn't need your you know gambling money for charity. Like you know, like that's not. I mean, I, well, I'm not talking about after the fact. I'm talking about before the fact. Like you want to give it to charity. Obviously, it's better for you to give it to charity than that. But God doesn't need. Like okay, like you know, I'm I'm literally sitting over here doing God a favor, gambling because. I'm so amazing, I'm going to win so much money and I'll give half of it to charity. God doesn't need that. When we come to some sort of twisted ideology that's saying, Robin Hood, when you, when you read, you know, these, these, you know, these stories, um, nowadays, who reads, uh, you know, when you, uh, when you read with your eyes a moving picture, uh, these stories, so you come and you start to thinking and be like, well, this guy is really good. And the answer is, no, it's not. When you're thinking with morality perspective of your eyes, of an atheistic perspective, then yeah, maybe he's, re- he's really good. Because there's so many people that are starving, and now he's taking from the rich, he's giving to the poor. Mazatov, he needs a bacha, he needs a big beard, he could give bachot, he could wrap some things in, in gold and hand it out to people, and then read, you know, keep this with you. Who knows what he could do? But, you know, when you speak about the Torah's perspective, this person is a ganav, this person is a thief, this person is doing everything that's terrible, that a person should, should not be doing. But when you, when you wrap your, your ideology in the secular world, you come to start to, to some sort of conclusions that this is correct and this is not correct. And the answer is that this is very, very problematic. And this is really where we come, where we leave off to our fifth, um, to, to our fifth, you know, uh, you know, concept of where God oversees everything from the beginning to the end. And when God oversees everything, so that means that what is right and what is wrong is not what you think was right is wrong. What is right and what's wrong is what says in the Torah. If this is right, then it's right. If it's wrong, then it says wrong. Don't try to start convincing yourself or convincing other people that this is right and this is wrong. But nowadays, because to, you know the fashion industry is like this, and nowadays because to entertainment, don't start convincing it. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. Number, let's go to number six. Let's finish it up. Number six and number seven. We're almost finished. Number six is that all matters are entirely on God and nobody else can harm you and nobody else can benefit for you. Now, 
the concept over here is that God has a monopoly of power. Now, the idea over here is that if you want to change something in your life, the main way to change it is through prayer. That is the main way. Because when you're dealing with it, God has the only aspect of change in your life is through God. And how do you get to God? Through prayer. So the only way that you could change something is through God, through prayer. Now, the important aspect over here is to understand, the Tobal of Anon brings this down, that many times we come with the if-only clause. And I want to give a class just on this, Bezat Hashem, on the regret. You know, like, if I would have done this, then I would have been married. If I would have done this, then I would have been wealthy. If I would have done this, then I would have had children, and so on and so forth. Everybody has the, that, uh, you know, the, the if-only clause. But, says the Tov Halvanon, says like this, says like, there was once a boat, and this boat wanted to go on a certain journey, but the sultan went and he accused the captain of the boat of a certain you know, false accusation, and he locked him up. Now, because of that, the boat wasn't able to leave on its journey, and because it had to leave on its journey only after the captain was discharged, it was you know, many months, and when the captain was actually discharged, the, there was a war that broke out. So the path that the captain wanted to take the boat to its, to its journey, now he had to go to a certain area because he didn't want to go past, you know, a war zone. So he went through a different area. Because he went through a different area and there he wasn't used to that area, there was a lot of boulders, icebergs and goldbergs that were hanging out over there. And this, you know, you know, boat hit this you know, boulder, and because of that it drowned. Now what happened on the boat? There was some sort of treasure. That treasure floated on the sea, that treasure eventually ended up into the seashore. Now what happened on this seashore? There was a certain righteous man, says the Tavad that this righteous man, he was accused of the sultan of a certain you know crime that he didn't commit, so he had to run away. Where did he run away? He ran away to the seashore. What happened as he ran to the seashore? And what did he see? He saw a chest floating up. He opened the chest, he sees all this beautiful you know treasure that he just he just found. Says the Tavad look at how many factors came into play over here. You have over here, number one, you have over here the factor that the sultan had to falsely accuse the captain. And not only that, he had to go and, he, and, and, and God created wars that the sultan now, that the, this captain had to go through a different path. And not only that, now the, the sailors and the captain put the gold in a case that could float. Look at that, you, you know, some ideas, some, some concepts that you don't even begin to think. The fourth incident over here is that the sea car and pushed it to the seashore. It could have pushed it the other way. Why did it push it to the seashore? The fifth one is that the sultan accused the righteous man of doing something that he didn't do anything wrong, that he had to run away to the, um, to, you know, to the sea. And now, in this, in the sixth criteria, is that it was put into the righteous man to go and look up and look into the sea and see this, uh, and see this, this treasure. There were so many things happened. So says God, says, says the Chavot, the Talmud of Anon, why did all this happen? It says it all happened because God wanted this righteous man to get money. So God created everything to happen in order for the final cause to be. So many times in life, we think that there are certain things that happen in our life, and we think this is what happened. We're just a stepping stone to the next step. We don't even realize what is going on in our lives. Only after 120, when we'll wake up and be like, oh, oh yeah, that's why this happened, and that's why this happened, and that's why everything, you know, everything plugs in so beautifully. The idea over here is, is when you think of a concept of, let's say somebody Let's say a city was affected by a tsunami, and the entire city drowned. And you think, okay, look at the city. It's so unfortunate that so many people died. 
And you think because, you know how you're being in the wrong place at the wrong time and the right place at the right time, people think, you know, because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, that's why I got mugged. Uh, because this, because that, who knows? Well, sometimes, yes, you got mugged. You shouldn't be in a certain areas. You know, that's, you know, that's true, like, in certain scenarios. But assuming you are in your normal place and your normal time and, and God forbid something bad happens, we think that, oh, if I would have been somewhere else, it doesn't work that way. God, think of it, the scenario like a tsunami where there's a major flood. God created everybody that needed to die in that flood to be in this city. So God orchestrated that this person finds it out that the schools are good over here, so they move out over here. This person found a good deal of a house, so they moved out over here. This person has to have a business over here, so they move out over here. So God orchestrated everybody to come to one area, and then, you know, swiped it out. It's not like, oh, bet. There's no such thing as a wrong place at the wrong time, or the right place. It's actually, there's always a right place at the right time. There's no such thing as a wrong place at the wrong time. I have to clarify that. I don't know if there's an every situation where, like, you're in a club, and you're like, I'm in the right place at the right time. This is where I, you know, like, okay, there's certain scenarios where it's the wrong place, you know, you shouldn't be there. But in general, if you're following the Torah, then everything is the right place at the right time. And the, and the idea over here is, is when you, when you look at it, is we're all really puppets. And I remember, um, quite a few years ago, I was in Italy, and there was a, is it called a puppet master? I don't know. A puppet master, right? So he was, he had a bunch of puppets. Like a bunch, like like not just like two for his two hands. He had like a bunch of them, and they each had a character. It was a street performer, and it was something so I've never seen this before. One was dancing, one was speaking. It was unbelievable. And when you're looking at the puppets, you're like, it's almost like they have their own life, that their own personality. They're like, okay, you know, like you know, this is, what's an Italian name? I don't know. Whatever it is, right? Someone help me out over here. Giovanni, Tony sounds better, yeah. So you have here Giovanni, Tony, Nicole, I don't know, whatever, Nicolette, I don't know. Whatever it is, you have a bunch of little characters over here, and they each come to life. Because when you look at the, the puppets, they're like, it, he was so good. Like the arms were moving the right way, the legs were moving the right way. One of them was dancing so unbelievably, it was crazy. And you get mesmerized by the fact that he's... And, but the funny thing is, is that... It's not like a puppet master that he's hiding behind the thing. You see, it was in the street. He didn't have that much curtains, right? You see him moving it. You see him moving the puppets. And at the same point in time, you look at the puppets and they look so real. They look like they have their own personalities. They look like they have their own character traits. They look like they have their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own names, their own, their own just their own person. But then you look up and you're like, wait a minute. Like, God, like this person is like orchestrating everything. And that is what we are to God. God orchestrates everything. Everything is in the hand of God except for the fear of God. So we have everything, everything that we do in our lives. So many things are already predestined for us. But there's certain things that are not. And that is our level of spirituality. That is a level of how we are going to grow. And that's why if you want to go and you want to change something in your life, the best way to change something, as the Pasuk says, in if you go and you follow my decrees, if you follow my Torah, then everything will be good. If you don't follow my Torah, then what can I tell you? Unfortunately, bad things will happen. The idea over here that is very, very important is that when you look at your life and you look at the concept of how everything works out, everything is from God. And we have to go and internalize it. There's some people think that, you know, and by the way, it's not always your fault. There's some people that say, there's some person that doesn't get married till the late 20s. But you want to know why? Because their spouse was eight years younger. And when they started dating, that would have been illegal. 
and they would have been arrested. What can I tell you? Right? But now, so like, when they get 20, and now they're 28, so now things work out. So, so many times that we, we don't understand the full picture. And when we live our life knowing that we don't understand the full picture, and we know that there is a full picture, then all of a sudden, all right, you know, it's fine. It's okay. It's okay with what we're dealing with. The Gemara Tanim, page 18b, there were two Jewish prisoners that they were captured by Roman guards and they were condemned to death. You know what they told the Roman guards? They said something like this. They said, if you don't kill us, God has many servants and many ways for messengers to kill us. They knew that they had a death penalty. You want to be the messengers of... You know what the... What's so important about this? It's not about the fact of, of that you're going to be fearful. It's the fact that how are you going to relate to your fearful situation? Are you going to go and you're going to start trying to go and, and speak to wealthy people and you, whatever it is, you have to do your shtadut. Or are you going to start beseeching God for forgiveness and for help for, from, from the one that could actually provide you with, uh, you know, with help? Says the Chazonish. It's very easy to have trust in God when it's easy. You know when it's difficult to have trust in God? You know when you know you have trust? When things get difficult. When things get hard in your life, that's how you know if you have trust in God or you do not have trust in God. After a person dies, there are two videos, there are two, two scenarios that a person will show and you know, you, you will get shown in heaven. One will be exactly the way that you live your life. Like this is how you live your life. Number two is going to be the abilities that you are able, the things that you are able to accomplish as you. Not as anybody else. As you, that's what they're going to show you. And the sad thing is, is that we know that God is close to everybody who calls out to Him. God is there. God is waiting. God is waiting for you to say, God, please help me find a parking spot in Brooklyn. That's what God wants to hear. God, please don't let me get a speeding ticket by the red light camera. God, God is there for everything, for finding a parking spot and finding a shidduch and dealing with a bad marriage and helping for a troubled son. It doesn't matter what you're going through your life, God is there. And you know what the, the most difficult thing is after 120? Like, they'll show you these two videos. And one video is, is what you lived your life, and the other video is what you could have done. And be like, yeah, well, I could have done, but that was, but it would have been very difficult. I would have been able to accomplish that. You know, the most difficult part is that if that God will tell you, all you need to do was call out to me. God is close to whoever calls out to Him. All you needed to do is call out to God. And if you would have called out to God, God, please help me find my zivug. God, please help me X, Y, and Z. That's all that you needed to do to accomplish your potential. Imagine, imagine the, the, the suffering that a person has to go through after 120. All we need to do is wake up in our lives and realize what we have to do and how close we are to to God. Let's finish up with the final uh, aspect, and that's aspect number seven. Number seven, the seventh criteria, is that God is generous and kind. What does that mean, generous or kind? Many times we feel like, you know what, I just did a good deed, and that's why God is going to make me have, you know, like I've got to have a good day, you know, within a week, because I literally just like done so much good. Or like, you know, God is going to help me so much because X, Y, and Z that I did. When we look at what God does for us, it's because of Rachum Bechanun. God is merciful. Nothing to do with what you deserve and what you earn. It has nothing. Just like your, it could be your wicked, it could be your righteous, it doesn't matter in this aspect. God will give you what you need for, because God is merciful. And that's the seventh aspect. The seventh aspect is that God has kindness. God, God has, God is giving you everything, not because you deserve it, because we don't deserve anything. Let's be honest, right? Let's, let's, you know, take the therapy out of our heads for a second. You know, we don't deserve anything. 
We really don't deserve anything. Everything that God has given to us is, is a gift. So when we think of that, then it doesn't matter whether we're righteous and whether, because even if we're righteous, even if we're working, we don't deserve it regardless of the matter. So when we're focusing on the aspect of the kindness of God, that means that everything that God has done for us is pure out of mercy. And if you have this, this, this thought process that God is merciful, that God has this kindness, then it doesn't matter what I did. There are many people that come and they tell me they just did a huge sin. Like, I, I can't do anything righteous right now. God doesn't want me. God doesn't want to see me right now. God doesn't even want to, you know, like, hear me talk right now. Like, I need to fix this right now. And the truth is, yes, you do need to fix it. But what does one thing have to do with another? Like, you did something bad, yes. So what does that have to stop you from doing something good right now? You have many people that, unfortunately, fall in certain sins in their lives. And they fall, and they think, okay, because I wasn't, wasn't modest today, so I can't pray. Why? Why does one thing have to do with another? Yes, you have an obligation that you should be modest when you pray. And when you do that, okay, fine. We're not going to go into all the details of the halakhot that you need to do. But at the end of the day, why do you go and say that who are you to decide what God wants from you and God does not want for you? God says you have to do with your halakhot. You have to do the 613 commandments. So regardless of whether you feel you deserve to do the 613 commands, or whether you feel you don't deserve to do the 613 commands, do the 613 because that's what you need to do. That's what you need to focus on. That's what the Pasuk of Tehillim says, chapter 145, verse 9. It says, God is good to all, and God has mercy to all His creations. Regardless of where you are in your life, and regardless of how far you have fallen, God has mercy on you. Now that doesn't mean that God has mercy on me, okay, fine, so I don't have to do anything, God will just do everything for me. No. Do what you need to do for yourself. Follow the Torah, follow the halakhot that you need to do. But at the end of the day, know that the reason why you get anything in your life is not because you deserve it or you earn it or lack thereof, but rather because God is merciful. Let's do a quick sum up. Finish off with one little uh, uh, mashal and then we'll open up for some questions. The summing up, right? Listen to this. Probably the most important part. Seven criteria of the Chavah Vavod. Number one, God has compassion, pity, and love. That's number one. Number two, God isn't forgetful or lazy. Number three, God is strong. And the small problems and the large problems are equally to God. Doesn't matter. Big and small, everything God could accomplish. That's number three. Number four, God knows what will benefit you more than you know what will benefit you. Number five, God is the exclusive care of you from the beginning till the end. Number six, all matter is in God's hands entirely. Nothing can happen to you unless God decreed it. No one can harm you and no one can benefit you unless God decree it. And finally, number seven is God is generous and kind. And one of the most famous, uh, I love this. This, is, this really deserves to be its own bumper sticker. Don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big God is. When you live your life with these seven criterias, the more that you build up on this, the more that you will be able to go and accomplish in your life. Now, the idea over here is, let's finish up with one final parable. Before I finish the parable, one important pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 116, verse 10. I believed, I believed them, why? Because I spoke. It's not enough to listen to these classes. It's not enough to learn about this topic. You have to constantly review it. You have to constantly go over. This is like, this is, in fact, this is a class that I should have, that I should have said that everybody should have brought pens and paper, pens and papers to them. Because these seven, now, right? Oh, it's on, Bezalashem will be on camera, so you can always review it. But these are seven, and if you don't have it, open up the Chobot Avavot. I elaborated on some concept, and I, you know, Chobot Avavot doesn't speak about Ethel and Ivan, but, you know, the major, the, the, the core essence of it is from the Chobot Avavot. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, if you want to go look at it, in the Shal Bitachon. The gate of Bitachon. So, 
But what is the Pasuk in Tehillim tell us? I achieved the Munah only why? Because I spoke about it. I constantly reviewed it. I constantly spoke about it. Emunah is a muscle. You have to constantly review it. And after you review it, you review it again. You have to work on this every single day. And it's so beneficial for you. I can't tell you how beneficial it is for you. These classes are so important that it will change how you are as a human being. It will make you happier. It will make you healthier. Every benefit possible to human being is through Emunah. This is so important. Learn the Chavot HaVavot. Realize this. Internalize it. Concentrate on this. Focus on this. Do seven. There's seven things. One day a week. Do one day a week that you're going to focus on one thing. Open the Chavot. Read it. I'm going to do one. God has compassion and mercy. So how am I going to learn that it's compassion and mercy? Focus. Internalize it. I cannot tell you how beneficial this will be to your life. You have to focus on this internally. This is a class that wasn't a lot of stories, was it? It was a lot of information and it's very, very important. I can't even begin to tell you how imperative it is is in each and every single one of your lives to concentrate on each and every single one of these factors. Read the Chovot HaVavot, internalize it, memorize it, do whatever it is that you can. The final mashal is like this. There was once a father that was uh, riding a donkey and his son was walking past by him. And it was a passerby that was you know, standing nearby and the father overheard him and he said, look at this father. Look at this father. Unbelievable. He's riding the donkey and the son is sitting and walking. The chutzpah that this father has. Unbelievable. The father hears about it. Feels bad. So what is he going to do? He's like, you know what? Son, you know, let's switch. He puts his, puts the son on the donkey and he walks past by. He walks past by. He passes by another person. And he sees... This obviously happened in Brooklyn because nobody else speaks out. Right? He goes and he sees uh, this other person. He overhears him and says, Look at the arrogance of the children nowadays. The father is walking and the son is sitting riding on the donkey. You know, it will be in my day. You know, they can't read in my day. You know, you know, the son will be carrying the donkey upon which his father is riding on and we'll be driving the trolley for our nickel. Whatever it is, right? You know, like... Everybody has their own complaints. Just look at this. The father over here is walking and the son is riding. Unbelievable. So the father is thinking about it. Be like, all right, you know, like, I guess he's right. So what do they do? They both go on the donkey. The father and the son both on the donkey. They're riding. They pass by, obviously, Park Slope. And they're going and be like, we got to call Peter. Look what's going on over here. <laughs> Two people riding on a donkey. The abuse of this donkey. Forget about hunger in Africa. This is what we need to focus on right now. The abuse on this donkey. So the father hears us and be like, oh, I don't want Peter coming after me. So him and his son go off the donkey. They keep on walking. They pass by the lake over there. And suddenly they hear somebody else going over and say, look at this. They have a donkey and no one's riding on it. Look at these idiots. Look what they're doing. And you look at it in general, when you look at life, you can't appease everybody. You go, one person likes you, one person hates you, one person says, you know, when you go and you learn about, you, you grow in, let's say, in religious, in the religious life aspect, what is going to happen? There's a certain family member, oh, you're religious now, yeah? I don't know why they speak like that, but, you know, like, they're frowning, and all of a sudden they're speaking from, like, down there, you know, like, speaking like that, and be like, oh, you think you're better than us? And the answer is, yeah, I, I am better than you. It's what you really should tell them. But you have humility, so you don't. And be like, you know, you're right, you know, like, I'm sorry, I'll say to Helen for you. I'm sorry, what's your name again? Refortion for Refortionethos? You know, like, you know, it's like, obviously, you know, you'll go to, to whatever, you know, level you need. But when you think about it, 
people always complain. You're too religious. You're too religious. You're not religious. You're not religious enough. You're just right for the other people. You're not enough. You know, so for the other people, you're too left. So you can never make any. You think about it. You can never make anybody happy. Also with emunah, when you go and you start focusing emunah, you think, okay, okay, fine. You know, there's seven criteria. Am I going to be able to get all seven? Forget about it. This is not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to do this. What do you do? You do nothing. Forget. It. If you could do one, good. If you could do seven, even better. If you could do six, minus one. So it's all. You know, it's all good depending on what your level you could do. The goal that you should have is to accomplish all seven of these. And it's not just knowing on it. It's internalizing it. I can't say this enough. Bring this into your life. Internalize it. Think about it. Focus on one thing at a time. What you could accomplish. What you could grow on in aspect number one. In aspect number two. In aspect number three. And eventually, these. this is the main steps. This is, in fact... In all criteria that I will speak about, Bezat Hashem, on Emunah, this is the main, this is the main class. This is the main class on how to go and grow with Emunah. This is what you need to focus on. Look at the Chovot HaLavot. If you didn't get what I said, open the Chovot HaLavot, the Shavu B'Techon, the second and third chapters. Go and read it, memorize it, internalize it, learn it. Any what questions? Do you recommend? Besides the Chovot HaLavot? The Chovot HaLavot, but which translation or which, if you're reading it in English? Feldheim has the only translation that I know in English. The classic one? Yeah, yeah the class one. Victor Miller and the Chavot Alavot? Yeah. Rabbi Victor Miller is great. There's Rabbi Victor Miller, there's also Rabbi Asher Rubenstein, also Rabbi Asher Zalig Rubenstein, if I'm mistaken. And also, well, when you open up, it's, it's fascinating, when you open up any of the, uh, of the modern day, um, books on Emunah, almost all of them quote the Chavot Alavot. So what I would recommend, the Chavot Alavot, the section on the Shabbat Dachon is not that big. Learn that. And then learn everything else. And then you'll see how everything else plugs in. But when you learn the Chavat Alavat, it's not enough just to read it. You have to like... Internalize the source. Exactly. Yeah. And then I'll get you. You didn't have a question. Okay. Okay, yeah. Um, what's the balance of like accepting something that's happening to you and then praying for it to change? Because technically if I believe that everything's happening to me is for my own benefit, like, like technically not be praying for it to change? That's a very good question. That's a question that I should really delve into on the Hishtadlut section, which I want to do after I finish this, this section. So the question is like this. The question is how, what point should I accept it versus should I pray for it to change, right? So I guess the simplest answer that I could give you right now is that if you have the ability to change it, then pray for it. If it's done already, then accept it. Vague answer for a vague question, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but I'll speak about it more about it when when we delve in Hishtadlut. The Hishtadlut is a whole section itself. Right now, we're working on the building of Emunah, and afterwards, we'll work on. And I'll get you afterwards. That's also true. It, I, it would be easier for me to hear like a particular scenario, but let me give you a scenario so that you don't have to uh, give it. If let's say some someone is uh, 79 years old, right? And they marry without children. And they've been praying that they should have a child biologically. Now, they're 79 years old. In human years, 79, I'm sorry, repeat that, right? 79 years old. They're 89 years old now, right? They just grew 10 years, right? They're 89, whatever it is, they're beyond the, the natural thing. So at that point in time, you accept it. But let's say you're in a time period in childbirthing where it's dangerous, maybe it's not, but it is still possible, then you should pray for it. Um, but there's a reason why I said 79 and not 65 or 60 or 50 or something like that. Cause there's a certain, point where you you just accept it 
at the end of the day, God can make a miracle for whatever, for any criteria. But at a certain point in time, you have to go and accept it. But these type of scenarios, these type of, of questions really need a particular question to have a particular answer. There are certain times where you should accept it and move on. And there are certain times where you should continue davening. And you should not stop. In general, you should never stop davening, no matter what, how far-fetched it is. But if I'm believing that it's not the right time, if it's not... Doesn't mean that you can't daven. So who said that sometimes there are many things in life that we don't get unless we pray for it? Unless we pray for it. So it doesn't mean just because God didn't give it to you yet, doesn't mean that you don't need to get it right now. It could be that you need to... For example, let's say, let's say you really want a job. So you pray for it, you pray for it, you pray for it. job's not coming, you're not getting it, you're not getting it. So maybe that job's not good for me, why am I praying for it? You should never pray that you want a certain job. Never jo- Never pray for something specific. So, but yeah, yeah. So, but... Right, but the idea is is that you sh- if let's say you want what comes out of the job, so money or so that you shouldn't even if you didn't get money or let's say someone prays for money, right? Very very common thing, especially in the in the men world, they focus a lot about praying for money, 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 and just because you didn't get it and you're seventy. What do we say? 69, 79? Whatever. 79 years old doesn't mean that you should stop praying. You should continue praying for it because by, you know, God could still make it happen. There's no, there's no reason why, why. You, you could pray for Panasa, no problem. It, you shouldn't pray that God will, what? Right. Or, or you don't, what? Why am I praying for it if I'm not? Okay, so so we're we're, gal- we're delving into a little thing about prayer, which which is I, I do want to speak about that when we get into prayer. So I'll give you the the simple answer, the simple answer right now for it. That let's say marriage, for example, right? So let's say um, person A wants to get married and they're 21 years old. Now, really, they don't need. It's not good for them to get married at 21 years old because. They are not supposed to, you know, like it just doesn't work out for them. So they pray, they pray, they pray, they pray, they pray, and we know when someone prays, God listens. So what happens? Eventually God listens and God, you know, allows that person to get married. Now how did that work? That works in a way that when you pray, you change who you are. You change who you are as a person. So now you're no longer just, uh, you know, the person that you are before the prayer. Now you are somebody else. Now that you're somebody else, says the Rambam, just like Chuva changes who you are, so does prayer change who you are. So when you change who you are, so beforehand, before the prayer, you, you, it wasn't beneficial for you. But now that you prayed so much, you changed who you are, you brought yourself to a different level, now you deserve to go and to get married. So it doesn't mean when you, just because you don't get something, so this is very, very common to be like, if God knows what's good for me, and God is only giving me what's good for me, then why should I pray for anything? God is giving me only what's good for me. And the answer is that, yeah, God's giving me what's good for you right now, but prayer changes you. It changes who you are. When we pray, we pray not only for ourselves, we pray for everybody else. We're praying for everybody else to be healed. We're praying for everybody else to get to Panasah. So we're praying, if we're praying for everybody else, so what happens is that, we're changing who we are as a person. So before your prayer, you are a person that it was beneficial not for you to get married. But now you're a different person. So much so that the Rambam in the, in the Chot Shuvah says that when you do Chuvah, you're not only, you're not considered your normal person anymore that you could change your name. That's how different they are. Change your name, change your mazal. So you change so much. So do prayer changes who you are. So now you could be worthy of, of, of marriage. You could be worthy of all these aspects of Panasa, whatever it is that you want. Good. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like something should be printed on a board or something and puts on your diner or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
I mean, I happen to agree with a lot of those sayings, and they're nice. You know, like you know, you go to some people's houses, and on their kitchen dinette, there's like faith. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, well, that's nice. You know, like I agree with that. You know, like. I don't know. Emona. What? I don't know that prayers ever go to waste. They don't. Yeah. They don't, and the, and it's true. There's there's many different aspects that that we can't comprehend. But just because we don't achieve our goals doesn't mean we give up our actions of what we do to try to achieve that. It's difficult. It very it is really difficult. You have somebody who is 69 years old or 79 years old. I don't know why I keep on forgetting the number that I keep on using. And they're not married or whatever it is. You you know you can't you can't give up. Somebody showed me. Um, and I didn't read it, but someone showed it to me in one of my classes that there was a two 90-year-old people that just got married. High 90s, first time. Yeah, two 90-year-old people, right? It's got to be marital, no in-laws, right? So, <laughs> so, um, or maybe, I don't know, I don't know. So maybe that's why they waited. I don't know, but whatever it is. But you see, like, you never give up. You, you really, you should never give up. Not that your in-laws will, well, okay, fine, you know, let's, let's move on. In life. Okay, any other questions? I hope no one gets married. I hope, I hope no one gets married for it. Yeah. I was going to add, like, what's that with the Dabin, what I saw? If you go to Dabin one more field, you would have gone in. Exactly. That's the scariest thing. The scariest thing is imagine you go and you pray so much for X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't happen, and you come after 120, and God will be like, it was just one more, mm-hmm. and you would have gotten that. And would be like, what? No! You know, like, as you fall down into hell. You know, like, no! You know, like, obviously not. You're going up to heaven. So as you climb up the ladder, you're like, no! Okay, so, you know, like, but we really don't know what the last one really is. Any other questions? No? Okay. Hazakabao. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.